We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, two passages were read from the Bible, Psalm 98 and Acts chapter 10. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. The point of Christianity is not morality. And the point of Christianity is not about finding the safe route to heaven when we die. Christianity does teach a beautiful and true ethic. It's beautiful. And it's very similar to the ethic captured by most of the world religions. To love your neighbor as yourself. This is beautiful and this is true. And Christianity does show the way to life after death. But when we move these things to the center of Christianity, it distorts and twists Christianity. So what is Christianity really about? Well, the passages that we're listening to tonight, Psalm 98 and Acts chapter 10. These are two very good places for us to um, give our attention in order to see clearly what the foundational point of Christianity is. In other words, these passages, they give us a chance to understand Christianity on its own terms. Let's start in Acts chapter 10 with verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. We have to be very careful here. We bring so much cultural baggage to this concept of tolerance that we've got to be on guard against bootlegging our own culture's value system into this statement. Our culture has a tolerance agenda. And we've got to be careful that when we're reading a 2,000-year-old document that we don't bootleg our notion of tolerance into what's being said here. What the incredible story that is narrated throughout Acts chapter 10 that that Allison and Janelle and Mary Elizabeth read to us just a few minutes ago, what this whole incredible story shows us is this. Your ethnic and social identity do not determine whether God accepts you or not. But notice the next verse. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The first thing Jesus says about, Peter says about Jesus and his message is this. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one true ruler and king of every culture and every ethnic group and every nation. He alone is God. There is no other God. Now, Peter does not tell Cornelius, I gather that you've got a wonderful faith. 
Even though we're all on different paths, we're going up the same mountain. That's not what he says to Cornelius. What Peter does say is this, Cornelius, the only true God that you have been worshiping from afar has come near to us in Jesus Christ. He's drawn near to us and he's done something that changes forever the shape of the world. The one thing that Christianity does not do is offer one truth among many truths or offer one version of a single truth that all religions are tapping into. Right at the heart of the Christian message is this idea that the Christian story is the only true story about God and the world. And look, this is difficult and disturbing to our Western late Enlightenment sensibilities. This kind of talk, it sounds arrogant. And it sounds intolerant. And it's not at all fashionable today to recognize significant irreconcilable differences between religions. But no one is helped by glossing over these very real issues in order to claim that all religions are equally valid or that all religions just teach various parts of a larger single truth. And honestly... The alternatives to what I've just said are really no different. When someone claims in the name of tolerance and humility, when they claim that no single religion is superior to other religions, well, that view is an arrogant view because it is claiming a superior view to all of the other views. It's saying your view is superior sounding, but mine is even better. It's no different. The claim of humility and tolerance is a religious claim to a superior knowledge. So what I'm saying is that if we are going to to understand Christianity on its own terms, now whether we accept it or reject it, we at least must give it a fair hearing. And if we're going to understand it on its own terms, we've got to be honest about what the earliest Christians believed. And in this verse that we've just read, we find the very first Christians, the the followers of Jesus, and they are clearly and courageously asserting that Jesus alone is the entire way and the whole truth. Verse 37. Before we read... Verse 37 and the next next five verses. Let's get our mind around something, okay? This is a very old document. It was written in the 60s. Not the 1960s, okay? But like 62 to 64 AD, okay? A long time ago. Now that's approximately 30 years after Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And the speaker is Peter. He was one of Jesus' 12 followers. He was one of the 12 men who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry. And so what we're about to hear out of his mouth is how the earliest followers of Jesus talked about the life of Jesus. 
This thing we're about to read, it is a summary of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, Mark wrote his whole gospel off of this summary. Mark's gospel is just an expansion of this outline. In other words, what I'm saying is, this is a really good place for us to start thinking about the authentic heart of Christianity. The real message of the church, whatever stripe and hue it bears. Verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank, and we were with him after he rose from the dead. Passages like this, They're like a palliative. They're a treatment that helps reduce the severity of our own cultural blindness. And if we listen close with an open mind, it's like C.S. Lewis said. He says when we read stuff like this, it's like the clean sea breeze of another time and another culture blows through our minds and exposes a whole mass of our own cultural assumptions and frees us up so that we can see a little more clearly the real point of Christianity. And the first gust of wind in this passage that catches us Americans off guard is this. It is so Israel-specific. I mean, Peter is talking to Cornelius, who's not a Jew, And Peter never tones down the Israel-specific nature of the story of Jesus. Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. So there are thousands of years of cultural preparation for exactly what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. What his life and message are all about. Everything that Peter and all of the other disciples, for that matter... Listen close. Everything that they understand about salvation flows out of this notion of salvation that had been incubating for thousands of years in the Jewish culture. And when we in the West put heaven and morality in the driver's seat of Christianity... In the driver's seat of the church's message, we are bootlegging an enlightenment agenda into Jesus' message of salvation. And you can be sure, whenever a church or an individual talks about the Christian faith without coming to grips with the distinctively Jewishness of Jesus and his message, then here's what's going to happen. We're going to turn Jesus into a cipher 
And we're going to abstract him out of his unique identity and we're going to turn him into some universal symbol and fill him up with whatever our culture values. Now there's one more great gust of wind that blows from this summary and should catch us off guard. And it's this. When Peter talks about this stuff, he's talking about something that actually Happened. He's talking about an event. Christianity is about something that happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Something that happened through Jesus of Nazareth. And as a result, a deep and real change has occurred to this world. When we reduce Christianity to a moral system, to a Judeo-Christian ethic, we lose this. We end up with a type of religion that is just one compartment of our life. But the bigger picture of our life remains defined by our culture. That's civic religion. It's it's a religion without the powerful beating heart of authentic Christianity. This is the way that Christianity gets co-opted by a culture... And ends up complicit with atrocities like segregation, the Salem witch trials, the Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades. Just roll it back through history and the list goes on and on. Now, when we put these two gusts of wind together, first, that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and second, The world really did turn a corner. Reality really did change at the resurrection. When we put these two things together, now we get to verse 42 and and verse 43, and we we see how powerful and utterly unique the message of real Christianity is. It says in verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is appointed. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here are two promises directly linked to Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's start with the last one because it's going to be easier for us. Peter declares that precisely because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and because something really happened through Jesus, he alone offers forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sin is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. On the cross... Jesus actually defeated the powers of destruction, evil, and death. Now, the Enlightenment culture that we live in, it gives lip service to the idea of sin. But really, it teaches us that sin can be fixed with a little psychology, 
some technological advances, economic prosperity. If we can just get democratic government to the Middle East, then sin will stop. People will stop blowing each other up. Everything will work out. If we can just bring good education to the third world, then they'll climb their way out of poverty. Do you see? The problem with the Enlightenment agenda is the 20th century proves it wrong. We've had the education. We've had the economic prosperity. There have never been this many democratic governments. And the 20th century is littered with bloodshed. Real evil is still in our world. It hasn't been stopped. But that's not the only place real evil exists. It's also in your own heart. And it's in my heart. It's it's in us when we realize our own dark thoughts, our wicked desires, our anger, our foolishness, and our greed. But in Christ, we're offered forgiveness. We have the opportunity to be restored to the way God intended for us to be. And this is why, if you look at the back inside cover of your worship guide, this is why one of our five tasks as a church is evangelism. Because forgiveness and reconciliation is available. The message of the church is forgiveness of sins. Why? Because Peter... He tells us right here, this is what Jesus was all about. That's easy for us. But that's only half the story. The other half is in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Peter declares... That precisely because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, he is the judge of all people, living and dead. Now there is a cry for justice in all of us. Just come to our house. In any given hour, you will hear Sloan say, that's not fair. Right? Any of you ever played a game, somebody cheats, and inside of you, there's this idea that fairness is right. It wells up in our heart. It wells up in us when we see cities being run into the ground, doesn't it? We want justice. When we think of Hitler and the nightmare of the Holocaust, we want to cry out, where's the justice? We want a world where the bullies don't always win. A world of fair and straight dealings, of honesty and uprightness, where communities function fairly and operate efficiently, and where people who hurt others don't just walk away laughing. We are all painfully aware that this world is broken. And here Peter is telling us, Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection was an infinitely costly rescue operation in order to put the world to rights, to restore justice 
to the oppressed and the marginalized. To be a Christian today is to be a part of that same rescue operation. That's the other half. This is why the Christian calling is not just to talk about forgiveness and heaven. It's also to work for the healing that comes from restorative and redistributive justice wherever we can. This is why another task of our church, if you look on that back page, is mercy and justice. Because justice sits at the heart of God's restored creation. And we are committed as Jesus taught us to pray, to God's will being done here on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer means that God's passion for justice must become our passion for justice. This is not an optional add-on to the Christian life. This is not an optional add-on for a church. Peter didn't just arbitrarily come up with this notion of justice when he was talking about the gospel. In the West, by putting morality and heaven and hell in the driver's seat of Christianity, we've ended up with an otherworldly religious system that ignores injustices all around us. But Christianity is far more this-worldly. It is about life here and now. And it's it's very important for us to wrap our minds around just how far-reaching this claim goes. This issue of justice, it's like the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland or the Matrix, depending on your generation. Shout to the Lord, we sang at the beginning of the service. All the earth, let it sing, right? Right before that, Robert read Psalm 98. Do do you remember what it said? It it talks of the earth itself rejoicing. The sea and all of its animals and all of the plants in the sea roaring with delight. The rivers clapping their hands. The hills singing with overwhelming joy. Did you catch the reason why creation itself is leaping forth in praise? The reason why we sang in that song and we told creation to sing? Did you catch the reason why? Listen to Psalm 98, verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the earth. It's talking there about more than all the people in the earth. Let the sea roar, it says in verse 7. And all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Now notice, in verse 9, it tells us why. The human and the non-human creation are connected in an interlocking roar of joyous praise. Because he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. There it is. The true God is coming To judge the earth. To judge it with true justice. Because of sin, the creation itself is out of joint. 
But the message of Christianity is that the whole creation is being set right. It's being put back on track to the way it was supposed to be. And here's the crazy thing. Psalm 98 is not an anomaly in Scripture. The way it connects justice and joy, the human and the non-human creation together, all of those things wrapped up in the idea of salvation. This is all through the Bible. All through the Bible we find judgment and joy, humans and nature, all wrapped up in the notion of salvation. It's all through the Bible. But when we put morality in heaven as the main point of Christianity, do you see? Do you see how it pulls us away from this? It divorces the message of the church from its Jewish roots, from what actually happened on the cross and in the resurrection. And do you remember what I said the result is? When we turn Jesus into a universal symbol, when we pull him out of his Jewishness, we make him into a universal symbol, what happens? We bootleg our culture's agenda into Jesus and into his message. Here's a prime example. On this issue, the prevailing cultural winds have taught us that the land is solely for the purposes of profit to the agri-industrial community. It's funny. Many conservative American Christians, we love to attach the adjective holy to the noun land when it involves Israel. The holy land. But we're blinded to what all of these passages say about the holiness of this piece of real estate. Wendell Berry once told a story about the artist Harlan Hubbard being asked by a local church to paint a picture of the Jordan River, a river that's prominent in the the biblical story. It's in Israel. Hubbard obliged, and he painted their own local river, the Ohio River. Reflecting on the situation, Wendell Berry said, if those of us who live in the watershed of the Ohio River saw it like Hubbard saw it, would it be so shamefully polluted? Would we be strip mining its headwaters? In other words, the Holy Land did not become holy by divine prejudice in its favor. It is holy because it was created by the divine creator. And as Christians, we must care for and celebrate nature. Why? Because it is a part of God's restoration project. We must love this world because it is God's world and it will be healed. It will become what God intended for it to become from the beginning. We're not merely passing through this Life, this world, we are shaping the building blocks of eternity. Look at it this way. The resurrected body of Jesus, that is the first bit of the material order renewed and restored. And it is a pledge, a promise from God that the rest of the material order will be also renewed and restored. 
Now, I know this sounds liberal and Al Gore-ish, okay? But if we're going to take Christianity on its own terms, if we're going to unleash the Bible from its American captivity, if we're going to let the clean sea breeze of the earliest understanding of Jesus blow through our minds, then maybe the uncomfortableness of this kind of ecological talk, maybe it's just like the uncomfortableness of the earlier talk that sounded like I lacked tolerance. Maybe it's just the flip side of the same coin. You see, it's unfair of conservative Republicans to refuse to listen to the part of the Bible that addresses ecological issues, but insist that more progressive or liberal people listen to the part of the Bible that speaks against their version of tolerance. The part of the Bible that speaks about Jesus as the only way to God. Ecology, Christology. The nature of creation, the nature of Christ. The message of the church is radical and unfashionable for Democrats and Republicans, for capitalists and pluralists. This is Peter's message. This is what Peter said to Cornelius and to his gathering. The living God, in fulfillment of his promises, and as the climax of the story of Israel, has found us, saves us, forgives us, and offers us new life in Jesus Christ. But there's more. If we stop there, we're only preaching half. If we stop there, we're only evangelizing with half. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the central event in the history of the world. The moment toward which everything was rushing and from which everything new emerges. And with the death and resurrection of Jesus, a shockwave has rattled through the cosmos. And despite all appearances, the world is in fact a different place, filled with new possibilities previously unimagined. And the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the final putting to rights of all things. This is huge stuff. And the living God has moved heaven and earth to make it happen. And the living God moved heaven and earth to get that message to Cornelius. Right? All those dreams and visions here and there and moving people all around. And that message that he brought to Cornelius, Peter just stood up and said it. Didn't even get a paragraph into it. And something happened in that room. Why? Because when we just tell that message, it has an inherent power more than your charisma or technique or whatever tool you bring on your belt with you. It has an inherent power. And when we tell it in Ethiopia or Kenya or Peru or the Black Belt or over the mountain, it, it acts as a summons to everyone who hears it. And sure, some will mock, but others inexplicably 
will find themselves gripped and changed from the inside out, aware of a new presence and a new power inside of them. That's what happened to Cornelius and his group. And here tonight, we are being summoned to discover through following Jesus Christ that this world is indeed a place of justice and forgiveness. And we are called to enjoy life in this new world and to work at bringing it to birth on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.